the podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter, sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. Good evening, everyone. Great to be with you. Before we dive in, we're going to watch, bear with me, a video about the Committee on Standards in Public Life. question scandal in 1994, the Prime Minister John Major established the Committee on Standards in Public Life um, to make recommendations on how trust in public figures and institutions could be repaired. The Committee's first report set out the seven principles of public life, also known as the Nolan Principles. Selflessness, integrity, objectivity, accountability, openness, honesty and leadership. Now, these have become part of the Ministerial Code, the Civil Service Code, and have been adopted by many public and charitable uh, bodies. It is these seven principles which lie at the heart of questions about the conduct of those at the heart of government today. Now, in Chapter 3 of Paul's first uh, letter to Timothy, he's essentially doing the same thing. Paul was writing to Timothy, whom he'd set the task of sorting out the church in Ephesus. Nick showed us in week one of this series, in chapter one, that this church has problems. They're obsessed with false doctrines and controversial speculations and have lost sight of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. A couple of weeks ago, Gemma unpacked chapter two. The church was in trouble because their worship gatherings were being undermined by angry men and women who were power-dressing and usurping teaching authority in the church. Simply, chapter 1 sets out the problem, chapter 2 sets out the causes of that problem, and chapter 3 sets out some solutions to that. We really need to bear in mind the journey that we've gone on so far, so if you have 
questions, you want to find out more about chapters one and two, we've got Nick and Gemma here with us. Talk to them or catch up online. You will notice that there are two main parts or two kind of tones that are happening in chapter three. The first part is about qualifications for overseers and deacons uh, and the reasons, then is the reasons for Paul's instructions. Paul says that the church is the pillar of truth. But this is maintained or undermined by how we conduct ourselves. We, God's people, the church, are very often people's first impressions of Jesus himself. What we do here is important for what happens on our front lines. The world... Our neighbours, our families, our communities are watching us and making conclusions about Jesus. So the question I want us to keep in mind this evening is when people look at us, do they see Jesus? We'll be coming at this big question by asking three more slightly smaller questions. Firstly, Firstly, who does this chapter apply to? Then, who are we to be? And then, who do we do it for? What springs to mind when I say bishop, minister, deacon? How about elder, presbyter, priest, pope, patriarch, padre? or cleric, clergy, or pastor. Each of these words are used to describe various people who lead and work in churches in the English-speaking world. And each of these um, words and associated words are derived from the New Testament, kind of evolving throughout history through various translations in Latin and other old European languages from the original Greek. In fact, we find two of these in our passage. One is deacon, you will have seen that. But the other, out of the list that we've got here, is bishop. It comes from the words that we've translated in our versions as overseer. So in other versions, you may well find bishop in its place. I know many of us have come um, from many different church traditions and backgrounds. And I imagine each of those words up on the screen that I've just said will bring different connotations about denomination and doctrine. Each probably brings a very different mental picture. And that is what I want us to be very careful about this evening. We must read into our passage that kind of baggage. We can't read in the established and loaded churchy roles that we've come to live with today. All of these have their roots in scripture, passages like this. But these titles and their offices have evolved over history to be much more than what Paul is specifically trying to address with this passage. And to do that we need to look at the original languages the literal meaning. So for 
overseer and deacon, which is what we're concerned with in our passage. They come from the Greek, and please forgive my pronunciation, episcopae, from which we get episcopal and episcopalian, and diakonos, where we get the familiar word deacon. But actually, these are far better and far more honestly, straightforwardly translated as people who oversee or lead and people who serve. I think this is helpful for us because this particular passage is not about defining offices or fixed roles within the church of overseer and deacon, but is recognising the different kinds of work that happens in a fellowship just like ours, the works of leading and the works of serving. Sure, Paul is referring to people who are leading and serving in particular organised roles, but not just that. All of us here lead and serve in some way, in some context, whether that's in our homes, in our families, our friendships, our workplaces, on our front lines. And within the church, we've got people who lead and serve in a variety of contexts home groups, areas of ministry, pastoral relationships, is by no means limited to the leadership team. So in a simple answer to our question of who does this passage apply to, well, it's all of us. Now, when it comes to perhaps the more formal and authoritative ways in which people can serve and lead within the church, You might think that Paul, based off all of the scandal and trouble that he describes in chapters 1 to 2, that he wouldn't want people kind of stepping up and interfering. That's not what he says. He says in verse 1 that it's a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer or someone who oversees desires a noble task. This work is good. It's good work. And it's good that people want to do it. But it does need to be the right people. And we all, all of us, in our church community, need to be on the lookout for people who could be nurtured and developed for different kinds of works of leadership and service. And it's not just the job of existing leaders to do that. It is all of us. I've been every bit as encouraged by friends, my home group, and just members of the congregation encouraging me in how I explore how I can serve the church. So while, as we will see, it may well be selective, not absolutely everyone can or should serve in these ways, it's not exclusive. It's not limited to a narrow few. So when we come back to our key question. When people look at us, do they see Jesus? It is right to say when people look at us, all of us. And verse 15, if you look ahead, it emphasises this by saying the people. We are the people. When people look at us, do they see Jesus? We'll go on to our next question now. Who 
are we to be? Now we know that this is about us. Who are we to be? What kinds of people? We know from chapters 1 and 2, if you've been with us, the sorts of problems facing this church. But even if you haven't been with us, you can probably make an educated guess by just seeing the kind of characteristics that Paul wants. And basically, if you make them the opposite, that's what's been going on. But these problems are not specific to the church in Ephesus. It's interesting that Paul prepares a very similar list to Titus, who was serving in a church in Crete. So I think we can confidently conclude that these are the characteristics that we need in our people who lead and the people who serve in whatever church context. Almost the Achilles heel will be fairly universal. We need these characteristics. So let's, first of all, look at those who lead. Look at those characteristics, those kind of qualifications. They need to be above reproach, faithful to their spouse, and we can kind of expand on that to be sexually moral, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunk, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, manages their family well and respectfully, not be a recent convert, and have a good reputation with outsiders. Now, I make that roughly 14 qualities in total for those who lead. Now, if we break that down, that's, I think that's five relating to how leaders relate to other people, their relationships. I think that's four about their personal morality. And thirdly, uh, there's three about their reputation with others. There's only one about their actual skill, and there's only one about their spiritual maturity. Now, if we jump ahead to the ones of those who serve, in our translations as deacons, we see that there is significant overlap. Note in verse 8 it says, in the same way. Deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, not pursuing dishonest gain. That to keep hold of deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience, they must first be tested. And in the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. And a deacon must also be faithful to his wife and manage his children and household well. I've deliberately kept in that women's section in there because I think it's part of a deliberate flow about the teaching about deacons before and after it's about women deacons, women who serve. So if we take that as a whole, it's all about service. Now if we break this down in a similar way, it's a similar picture. Three about relating to others, five on personal morality this time, two on reputation, but again, just one on skill and one on spiritual maturity. Now why is this significant? Why do you think that might be? It's because Paul is, he's concerned about our character, our holiness, not our abilities. Maybe you don't know what you could offer God. You don't know what you could contribute to church life. Maybe you don't think you have any skills that would be useful. Now, let me encourage you. That's okay. Your skills were never the criteria. It's about your personal holiness. 
about your character. It's your character that Jesus has been shaping and moulding from the very day he first met you. If you're walking with Jesus today, there is work within his community for you to do. We're all encouraged to serve him and join in his mission. Maybe you've fallen out of the habit of serving regularly at church, completely understandable given the couple of years that we've had. Maybe you're new to Belmont and you don't know how to get stuck in. Maybe you're just not sure what on earth you could offer. Talk to us. Pray about it and talk to us. We really want to help you. We want to help you be obedient to scripture, be obedient to Jesus, by helping you to serve him. Talk to us. And if you need any more encouragement, look no further than verse 13. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and a great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. When we serve well, it brings joy to Jesus and it shores up our faith. It's faith in action. But let's be clear. It makes sure up our faith. It is our faith in action. It is our faith that matters here. It's our faith that brings us to Jesus. We don't work our way there. We must get that in the right way around. So while these characteristics are listed here for people who are leading and serving... They don't just apply to people who lead and serve. If you know your New Testaments, you will know that these instructions, or these kind of instructions, they're presented to us, all believers, as things that model holiness and model the life that Jesus wants for us. But what Paul is doing here in our passage, he's stressing that people who have responsibility within the church, particularly those with authority, visibility, They need to be leading by example. But we need to be careful with that too. It's not about perfection. Expectations are higher, but it's not perfection. It's not sinlessness. That's impossible. We're human. Of course, leaders will have bad days. They will make mistakes. They will fumble things, as we all do. But the important thing is that their character is good and godly. And while there is lots in this passage for everyone, I really think there is. We shouldn't overlook the fact that Paul is writing about people who take up responsibility for leadership of whole church communities. And I think verse 5 makes a powerful mission statement for that. It's manage management and caring for God's people, for God's church. And it's managing and caring as if it's one's own family. Now just imagine that, think of your, your families, whatever that might look like for you. When it comes to managing and caring, that level of commitment, that through thick and thin, the ups and downs, management and caring for your own family. And I think one of the points that Paul is making with this whole chapter is that culture is shaped from the top. Church culture is shaped by the leadership example. Much like how a parent sets the dynamics 
for a family. And this is why it's important to have good and godly people doing this sort of work at all levels throughout the church. These characteristics of responsibility and honesty and care and integrity are vital when we consider what we ask those who lead and those who serve, what they actually do. We trust them. We trust them to minister to us faithfully, promoting God's will, not their own. In our times of need and vulnerability, we turn to them. They steward our fellowship's resources. As it was in Ephesus, when this trust and responsibility is broken, it is particularly devastating. Over the last couple of years, there have been a number of much-reported instances of leaders of Christian churches and ministries being exposed as people who abused the trust placed in them by God's people. Sometimes they've simply not lived up to to the descriptions here. Sometimes it's not practising what they preach. But in the cases that I've got on the screen there, it's they're using their position of power and authority, so that is what they are at the end of the day, to bully, humiliate, exploit, sexually abuse, physically abuse, psychologically abuse, spiritually abuse, undermine or extort the very people that they were meant to care for. And these weren't one-off mistakes. I've said one-off mistakes happen. These were ongoing, repeated patterns of unrepented behaviour. And we see that not living up to this passage leaves people open to become conceited, to fall under judgment, fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Tragically, heartbreakingly, this has occurred from the time of Timothy throughout history to today. And no matter how comparably few these kind of bad leaders may be compared to the number of leaders who tirelessly and faithfully serve their church families, it is devastating. Absolutely devastating for those caught up in it. And with each example that I've got there, each example that I know of, whether it is a big scandal, just a personal disaster, at least one of Paul's criteria from 1 Timothy 3 has failed. You can almost tick them off. And in most cases of these abuses, they were allowed to continue because other people looked the other way made excuses, made allowances. And I think that's partly why we have passages like this in the Bible. So we can be watchful, prayerful and accountable to one another. Abusive leaders are devastating to God's mission. But humble, sacrificial servant leaders follow in the very footsteps of Jesus. Earlier today, um, 
if you tuned into the service or were here, we heard from John, who is an executive head teacher. He shared um, a quote, which I'm going to remember the top of my head, about what, lead, what a leader is or what a leader does. They observe, they absorb chaos, they give, oh, give calm, and they offer hope. Absorb chaos, provide calm, and offer hope. And actually, I think that sums up what a leader with, of any kind within God's family is meant to do. thinking back to ourselves, thinking for whatever context we're leading and serving. How do we lead? How do we serve? And I mean that not in what do we do, but how do we do it? What kind of people are we? Do we let pride, entitlement or reluctance creep in? Or do we serve with humble, sacrificial, but enthusiastic hearts? When people look at us as we lead and serve, do they see Jesus? Nick, in his introduction to this letter, really helpfully explained how Paul has structured uh, his whole message. And we can see in the diagram here, that verse 16 is at the heart of this whole letter. It's a poem, and it's the crux, the crescendo. It's the thing which everything has been building to, the thing on which everything hangs. I'm going to see quite how important Paul thinks it is. It's beyond all question. This isn't just his opinion. It's something that's absolutely and eternally true. It's a creedal statement. It's like a mini-creed. It sums up the fundamentals of our faith. And the word mystery that's used here isn't a mystery as in, ooh, I wonder what it is. It actually means a revealed secret. A bit like at the end of a who's done it and the murderer is revealed. That kind of mystery is revealed. It's known to us. And this revealed secret is the gospel, the good news. And Paul spells this out in this poem. But, as I've spoken about earlier, these letters, the books of the Bible, weren't written in English. They're not structured in an English Western way. Western way, that's where we are now. Um, (laughs) Sorry, got distracted there. Do apologise. But we we have this poem here, and... It says, he appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed in the world and taken up in glory. Now, depending on how you think this is structured, kind of provides an interpretation of what it particularly means. I want to go through them very quickly now, and and I think they're they're all good. I think they're all useful. So there's the passage there that we've got in front of us. So it could be chronological. It starts with Jesus' incarnation, God taking on human flesh. Then talking about his earthly ministry, empowered by the Spirit. Then it's about Jesus' resurrection, because the angels were there and they they witnessed that. 
and just the missionary proclamation, like the good news of the resurrection going out to the world, people responding to that, the response to this proclamation, and then Jesus' glorification in heaven with the ascension. That's one way we can look at it. That sounds good. All good news to me. Another way that we can interpret this is alternating. He appeared in the flesh, that's earthly. Was vindicated by the Spirit, now that's heavenly. Was seen by angels, that's heavenly. Was preached among the nations, that's back to earthly. Was believed in the world, earthly. Was taken up in glory, back to heavenly again. Really emphasising that it's God come to us, the divine becoming human. Now I think... This might be a record for Belmont, but I think Nick used the word chiastic. I know Gemma used the word chiastic. I'm going to use the word chiastic. So chiastic, if you don't know, it's kind of where everything builds up to a point and then comes back down again and it kind of reflects what's come before. He appeared in the flesh, that's manifestation on earth. Then we go to acceptance in the spiritual realm, comprehension by heavenly beings. Then we're coming back down the other side of the mountain, comprehension by human beings acceptance in the earthly realm and then manifestation in heaven. Now, I I don't know which one of these is right or intended. Maybe all three are. But I think each faithfully and enthusiastically proclaim Jesus as the God who came to save us. And that is now glorified in heaven. Now this is the truth, the truth of all creation and salvation. And verse 15 talks about the church of the living God, us, as the pillar and foundation of the truth. Now, this is why healthy church culture matters. This is why godly character of those who lead and serve matters. People ought to conduct themselves in God's household because we are people's first impression of Jesus. Whatever we do and however we do it will determine how people think about God. When we do this well, as a community of grace and truth and love, we proclaim the good news of Jesus. If we don't do this well, as a dysfunctional community of disunity, disillusionment and selfishness, we undermine the good news of Jesus. Simple as that. And that's why Paul is so emphatic about this. It really does matter. I imagine all of us at one point or another have had a conversation with a friend or colleague or relative that when big scandal comes out about some Christian leader or some Christian institution. They, it's hard to answer against that. When people who claim to be working in the name of Jesus do something awful, it undermines the good news. Now, I think Paul is rather clever. Well, I think many of us do. But I think it's clever in particular for putting this poem immediately following on from the characteristics of leadership and service. He's reminding us that Jesus is our model, our role model for leadership and service. Sharing with you um, two, two verses here. We're talking about overseers, leaders and servants. 1 Peter 2, 25. 
who are like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And then Philippians 2, 6-7. Who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. In fact, if you look at each of the characteristics that we have listed in chapter 3, we find them rooted in our Heavenly Father's own character, in Jesus' own earthly life, and in the gifts brought by the Holy Spirit. So when we lead and serve in a 1 Timothy 3 kind of way, we are reflecting the Father's character. We are imitating Jesus' earthly life and we are relying on the Holy Spirit. When people look at us, do they see Jesus? Now this afternoon we've dug deep into this passage. We have. And we've seen that Paul is not just talking about leaders and those who have official responsibilities of service, but it's all of us who lead and serve within the church community. And we've seen it's about having holiness of character rather than lots of skill. And we've seen that when we do it for God, we reflect God, we proclaim God when we do this right as a church community. So as we reflect on our front line, we must also reflect on what we do here. So for one last time, when people look at us, do they see Jesus?